0: Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology, with me, Tjasa Zaitz. We're in the middle of a series of discussions about healthcare data challenges and data management practices in the US. One thing is clear to everybody, regardless of the efforts, Patient data is still scattered around in different organizations. In the first episode, you could listen to a discussion with the CEO and co-founder of Komodo Health, Arif Natu. Komodo Health currently has some part of healthcare information of 330 million people in the
1: U.S. In the U.S. system, we have privatized providers. So each provider is out for themselves and we have private payers and a government payer. But the implication of that is that every single actor in the healthcare system only sees the patient for the amount of time that the patient is with that either payer or provider massively fragmented. And we're probably seeing robustly about at least 50 to 60% of everything that's happening in the U.S. It's a phenomenal sample. But again, like, it's this is in one type of information which is the healthcare transactions that a patient's going through i don't see that much lab results i don't see that much on the symptoms that maybe tracked in ehr when we talk about percentages it's like very difficult to know what the true denominator is and so we always tell people like hey we've got about half the country in terms of visibility of some aspect of their healthcare but That other 50% is locked into a lot of different systems that we need to continue to get to. And so data itself is also equally fragmented. It sits on so many different systems. None of it really is connected and talks to each other.
0: One of the leading providers of electronic healthcare record systems globally is EPIC. EPIC holds around a third of the U.S. EHR market share and has some part of medical data of 250 million patients. In the second episode of the data series, Phil Lindeman, VP of Business Intelligence at EPIC, and EPIC's clinical informaticist, David Little-MD, explained a bit more about EPIC Cosmos, a database built to enable easier clinical research that contains... 178 million de-identified patient records from over 6.5 billion encounters representing patients
2: in all 50 U.S. states.
1: Today, there's about 176
2: million patients in Cosmos. It's usually growing by a few million a month at the current rate that customers are, are onboarding. And of those 176 million, 50 million of them, already
1: have their chart being integrated from multiple organizations, meaning multiple organizations that have that patient in their medical records have joined Cosmos, and now those two charts have joined together in Cosmos to create a more longitudinal record.
0: In today's episode, you'll hear from Samir Uni, Healthcare Business Development Lead at Palantir Foundry. Palantir Foundry connects the back-office software systems and analytics team directly with caregivers. Foundry is used across healthcare and life science value chain, from drug discovery and development through manufacturing, marketing, and sales. At the federal level in the U.S., Palantir is partnering with Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Department of Health and Human Services, Food and Drug Administration, National Institutes of Health, Department of Veterans Affairs and other institutions. In this short discussion recorded at HLTH 2022, Samir explained the principles of Palantir in healthcare, why they support an open data approach, how do they choose their customers and more. Enjoy the show and make sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter, which can be found at fodh.substack.com. So you'll receive a condensed report of this healthcare data series. Find the link in the show notes. Also, make sure to subscribe to the show to be notified about the next episodes automatically. We have two more to go in the healthcare data series, and then we'll move to good practices in the Netherlands in a series about digital health in the APEC region. So stay tuned, but now let's dive in today's discussion. Samir, thank you for joining this discuss- discussion. Palantir is a well-known company, but What is Palantir Foundry and can you name a few customers that are using this on the healthcare side?
2: Palantir Foundry is the world's leading platform for making decisions from data. So what that means is that from the starting point of where that data sits within an organization, we don't bring external data sources to our customers. We simply enable them to make better use of the data that they have. All the way through to structuring, harmonizing, organizing that data, then to enabling our customers, their employees, their partners to make sense of that data in an operational capacity day to day, whether it's on the factory floor or in the research lab is at the core of what we do.
0: When customers work with you, all the data stays with them. So they remain in the ownership of their data. So what does that mean for you? And can you maybe talk a little bit more about that? How does the fact that the data stays with the customer impact how you improve and develop new solutions?
2: Thanks so much for calling that out. I think it's really important for us to highlight that. It's something that we've worked a lot to do, especially since DPO uh, a few years ago. We do not take custody of data. We do not make decisions about how that data is processed, hosted, analyzed, anything similar to that. And I think the biggest value that comes out of that is that it allows us to work with some of the world's most important institutions and help them, for their own purposes, host, process, analyze their most sensitive data that they would not allow to be posted, processed, or analyzed by systems that also happen to be using that data for other purposes.
0: You work with the NHS, you work in the US. Can you name a few of the other customers that, you know, you can reveal publicly and how do you decide who you actually want to work with? So who are your customers and who will never be your customers?
2: But To start with that last question, in terms of who would not be one of our customers, I think one of the core founding principles of the company is that uh, we support the mission, the values, the goals of the West and its allies. So that obviously puts us out of working with countries that find themselves in opposition to the U.S. and its allies. I think that's probably the first and most important principle. And then, of course, when it comes to the way in which our customers are using their data, there are certainly situations on a case-by-case basis where we would not want to be assisting them in in misusing that data or mishandling that data.
0: Did we mention any additional customers apart from the NHS and the US?
2: In the US, I think a lot of our work Again, because we happened to start on the federal side, working with the DOD originally, we naturally expanded to working with a number of agencies associated with HHS. One of our big projects over the last few years was, of course, pandemic response. And we worked with the HHS leadership to establish HHS Protect. And I remember in the early days, It was really a scavenger hunt. We were just looking anywhere and everywhere to find pieces of data that could be used to better inform the White House on the course of the pandemic. And in April, May of 2020, that meant taking a call with anybody who would be interested and getting various information from public sources as well. I remember we used some of the data from the New York Times and had to correlate that with information we were getting from private sources. And in the early days, of course, the quality of the data we could supply was low, but I think one of the core principles that we apply is that we move quickly and we iterate to improve over time. And so by Q3, Q4 of 2020, that quality had improved, and it was what then gave the federal government confidence that using that data to build machine learning models to inform the distribution of vaccines in early 2021 would be effective. And that was what was called the Tiberius Project.
0: So that's a specific project for public health. But if I'm trying to think about on the hospital level, how do you approach, first of all, accessing data in the electronic healthcare records? and the structuring that you were mentioning before. I was also wondering what are the foundry archetypes and how do they relate to the existing data standards?
2: To give an example, we work with a top three NCI-designated cancer center. And that's an example of a customer where we have to extract data from their electronic health record system. And what that looks like is a few things. So one is that in contrast to a lot of what you'll hear here uh, at Health, we don't limit ourselves to only pulling data via the standards or the approaches that have been laid out as the future. We try to meet our customers where they are. That often means that it, you're picking up data from a researcher who has improved the quality of the data in the electronic health record by reviewing it and ultimately. That kind of open approach allows us to drive improvements quickly that then build trust within an institution that the effort that they're investing in the partnership with us is worth it. And we find that's by far the most important thing. When we arrived at that institution, they had just come off of a challenging project to do something similar to what we were attempting that hadn't gone so well. And so being able to show that we could make progress quickly was really important. And that meant that we had to ensure that every claim we made, that every step we took was going to yield real fruit and that we were very careful before making requests of our customer. I think we often find that that total cost of ownership associated with implementing a digital health solution is underestimated. And we always strive to minimize that for our customers.
0: So what are the archetypes, your archetypes? What does that refer to?
2: What that refers to is the different motifs of use cases and the associated data that we see within our software. So an example of that in our work with hospitals, which also is reflected in our work in the airline industry, would be a schedule. For example, we help our hospital customers more efficiently and effectively schedule their clinical staff, their nurses, in accordance with demand, that is, patient census and associated factors, length of stay. As it turns out, there are many similarities to the way in which we help our airline customers schedule their planes. So switching a nurse from one unit to another in accordance with expected patient discharges, it has similarities at the data level, the archetype level, as you mentioned, to changing the route on which a plane is scheduled. And that those archetypes allow us to provide a more out-of-the-box solution to our customers, a more robust solution as a result, without having to build something that is very narrow and specific to a certain industry or vertical
0: with the archetypes uh, i'm just wondering like how are they used is this like a new data specification that then the institution uses and just slowly builds up the data in that specific k- kind of data formation and what does that mean if they want to then switch from that system to something else
2: so on the first or on the last question around uh, switching to other systems all of the data and the associated logic within a Foundry is stored in open source formats that can be accessed and then read without using any of our tools. And that's something that we made a commitment to at the beginning because in this day and age, there isn't really any tolerance for proprietary standards or formats. It just ends up being... A non-starter, when you show up on day one. But in terms of what the functionality of what you're talking about, the archetypes, how that manifests in practice is, that although that data, that logic, that schema is exportable and readable in standard formats, we've taken the extra step of linking all of that together so that it's not just, if we say that there's a schedule archetype, it's not just about uh, how the data is stored. It's also about the business logic that is used to actually surface that data it's about the user interface components that are used to render that information and so you can imagine how the actual rendering of those schedules can look similar across these different domains even if the underlying data is not exactly the same
0: Uh, how's the whole business model uh, developing for healthcare in your case how are you expanding from one use case to another from population health planning for vaccinations, which also did with the NHS and their equipment during the pandemic. What are some of the other use cases and how are you thinking about the future of where you're going to further invest?
2: I think there are effectively two steps in our, in our expansion process. So the first is the step of landing in a moment of great need. So the vast majority of our customers originally started working with us in the midst of a crisis. This is part of the reason why we've been able to move so quickly in so many different domains. Otherwise, it it wouldn't necessarily make sense to have a company that had not done that much work in public suddenly play a major role in something like COVID response. But in a crisis moment, people are more open to to new participants and to new solutions. So that's really the first step. And then the second step is to find ways within those institutions, once we've established that trust, to expand to additional use cases. And to take an example from outside of healthcare, when the invasion of Ukraine started earlier this year, by the end of day close a business on February twenty fourth in the US, we had more than a hundred people in an internal Slack channel trying to figure out how we could help. And that's really a core part of the company culture. It wasn't a top-down mandate. It wasn't, hey guys, we need to find out what we can do here. And it was definitely wasn't a how can we make money from this. And it was the same with COVID. When we started, there was no monetary focus to begin. And of course, over time, we find ways to add value that our customers see fit to reward us for. And you might have seen recently that we published some of our work with the Homes for Ukraine project in the UK, helping resettle 100,000 refugees. And of course, working with that agency in the UK will hopefully lead to additional work in adjacent spaces that might not have anything to do with the invasion or the resettlement of the refugees. And we see the same thing happening in our work in going back to the example in oncology. When we first started working with that NCI-designated cancer center, we were focused on an internal initiative to help them just understand how many patients have had cancer in the last 18 months, right? But it wasn't until we'd solved that problem and established trust that they then said, we also need to solve this other problem around how we collaborate with our academic and industry partners.
0: You mentioned that 100 people collaborated in this Slack channel to try to figure out how to help Ukraine, which made me wonder how big is the team that's focused on healthcare. And if you, by any chance, know the number of people that work on data analytics, engineering. So what kind of profiles do you have in the team?
2: So first, on the question of how many people work on something like this, I think it's really hard to say because people move in and out with such fluidity. But I would say that, roughly speaking, it's probably on the order of hundreds, if not close to a thousand. But there are probably at least a a third of the company that touches our healthcare work in some way, shape, or form, whether from a product standpoint from an internal support standpoint, or from the actual engineering and implementation and business development side, which is where I sit. What was the other question?
0: If you know the breakdown of the different profiles related to just data analytics, data engineering, data management.
2: So I think we think of it roughly in two main roles on the customer-facing side, the, the sort of the main role, and then the product side is more traditional in terms of having your software engineers, your product managers, project managers, et cetera. The part that's unique and interesting about us is that we have these two roles, the forward deployed engineer and the deployment strategist who work hand in hand to actually go into that crisis situation, identify how we can best serve our customers, and then solve a problem. The example you know, of that, uh, that cancer center where I started working in 2018, there were four of us who showed up to begin that work. And I think it's really illustrative that there were only four of us because one of the first questions that they had was, Where's everybody else? It's just four people. And I think that's where our product oriented approach is really important because the technology we developed to securely store and analyze data on behalf of our customers in the defense space can be reused in many ways to do the same with health data. And that kind of amplification of our impact means that we're actually a relatively lean organization when it comes to the number of people.
0: In the U.S. especially, a lot can be done with healthcare data because As long as healthcare institutions anonymize the data, so just strip them from the identifiable information, they can sell that that data and they do. So there's a lot of businesses that are working with that data to come to various findings and insights and offer that on the market. From your perspective, what are you most excited about in terms of the future revenue growth in the medical data analytics space?
2: I think that what you describe around the de identification and the sale of the data, that sort of trend is one that is drawing increasing scrutiny and one that needs to be reevaluated in terms of the social and hopefully regulatory acceptance of that practice. And what we try to do is enable our customers to enter into secure data collaborations. Where data is no longer being sold, passed on to other individuals, and instead partners, our customers, uh, can partner to collaborate on that sensitive data in a way that is much more respectful of patient privacy. For example, allowing for dynamic revocation of patient consent so that if I change my mind about my data being used in that research context, I can have that removed even after the fact
0: interesting point because dynamic consent is a very interesting concept, but yeah, from my perspective, it's questionable to which extent could you actually implement it. Do you already see any of the good use cases of this approach, even if it was just like a pilot project? Because I mean, oftentimes patients give consent either because they are under pressure, they are in a vulnerable situation, and they don't really have the capacity to really think through what they're consenting to. Most of all, they just want to receive care that they need at that specific point.
2: Yeah, so I think that component, the patient side, we're not a patient-facing or clinically-oriented company. So that's where our role there is to identify and partner with organizations that will treat their patients with respect. And I think that's been a key part of how we've approached our partnership so far. And going beyond that, it then comes down to what does the patient want. And I agree that in in terms of actually implementing something like this, we're only at the earliest stages. But a lot of what we've been doing has been laying the groundwork for that kind of technology to be feasible. Because what we often see is that decisions made from a technology standpoint years, sometimes decades ago, come back to haunt us.
0: According to your observation, what data do you see that has most financial value? And do you see any trends there in terms of where the U.S. market, for example, is moving?
2: I think it's hard to speak in general terms because really is about the relevance of the data to the consumer and to to the analyst that said in our work in the oncology space i think there's a great amount of interest in being able to better understand the clinical force of the patient there's been a lot of sources of information that have given that molecular picture and while that's important, we have to take into account what's actually happening to these patients day by day. And that's something that our partners see as important and valuable complement to the molecular focus that we often see.
0: I just have one question about a phrase that caught my attention on the website, and that's automated data integration because. If there's two words that people in healthcare IT get a headache of, it's interoperability and integration. So how do you automate data integration?
2: What you're probably referring to is our HyperAuto technology. So the HyperAuto product suite started out actually, and again, this sort of speaks to the way in which we reuse some of these principles across domains across industries and not just customers. It started out on the ERP side, so really helping organizations with making sense of ERP data by pulling it out of those systems and mapping it into a form that would be more comprehensible and not making them do that data integration manually in each case. In the in the healthcare space, we're just starting to do that now and in terms of how I would think about that with respect to interoperability is that, again, going back to what I said earlier, we don't restrict ourselves to just the sources of data available via those standards, via those endorsed approaches. We would love to see everything mapped into that format and we play a role in that where we can and then expose that via our standard apis but we often see that you do need to do some additional work before you can get to that that dream state
0: you've been listening to faces of digital health a proud member of the health podcast network stay tuned subscribe to the podcast to get new episodes automatically and also check out our newsletter at fodh.substack.com That's fodh.substack.com and see what we covered in the last month.
1: Stay tuned.